We'll be looking this morning at Luke chapter 12, verses 23 to 20, excuse me, 13 to 21. Luke 12, 13 to 21. It's the center of Luke 12. If you would please give attention to the reading of God's holy word. The word of the Lord is completely sufficient. The word of the Lord is completely authoritative. And the word of the Lord is completely without error. Luke chapter 12, beginning at verse 13. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Let's pray for his blessing upon it. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning that you would use your word, that you would use it to convict us of sin, to show us righteousness, and most of all, Lord, to reveal to us clearly the Lord Jesus Christ. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. This passage is an uncomfortable one for the modern American. Because, after all, our world revolves around stuff, doesn't it? We go about accumulating more and more stuff, and we think it's something that we must have in order to make it through the day. But I wonder, have you ever been especially recently, to an estate sale. And you go through and you wonder why someone would keep two 8-track players. And why would they have 30 out-of-style sets of shoes? And why in Houston would they have three winter coats? All of this seems foolish until our estate sale comes. Because, you see, we think we could not possibly get rid of our CD collection. 
We might need it again someday. And then we ask, when was the last time you actually played a CD? You see, it's stuff that accumulates more and more to us. And in our world today, we're actually made guilty, made to feel guilty if we don't accumulate more and more stuff. You hear in the news about difficulties in the economy, about a recession coming or ongoing. And what do the talking heads say? Well, the economy is sluggish. You know what the problem is? People aren't buying enough stuff. Consumer spending is down. If people would just buy more stuff, then we would all be better off. This is the American way of the buying, accumulating, and storing of stuff. There is no end. There are very few other places in the world or in other times in the world when there would be an entire industry based around giving you extra space to store your stuff. But you see, this is a problem that is built into the human heart. It's not just an American phenomenon. It is something that Jesus dealt with directly in his day of living in Palestine. And if we are honest with ourselves, it is something that we must confront as well. And so this morning we have a sharp text, a text that cuts close to home, that shows us the foolishness of stuff. We see it in three ways this morning. The first thing we see is a man who is possessed by possessions. The second thing we see is a story of a second man who is centered on self. And what ties both of these men together is inadequate preparation for eternity. Possessed by possessions, centered on self, and inadequately prepared for eternity. Well, let us take a look at this text so that we might not be possessed by the things we possess. So that we might not be centered on self, but rather upon others. And so that we might be adequately prepared for eternity. This is yet another good example of why it is helpful to look at texts consecutively in context. Because Luke is a master storyteller. He is a master at putting things in the right context. And so here we have an occasion, you will recall, where Jesus is teaching the crowds. He is publicly teaching and he is Most specifically, you might recall from last week, he is teaching the crowds and us what it means to take a public and dangerous stand with Jesus on spiritual things. You recall, he was encouraging us that when we are being persecuted, that we need not worry about the words that will come out of our mouth because the Holy Spirit himself will come and give us the words we need in that day of need. So, of course, the next possible thing that would come up would be a squabble over inheritance. When you look at it in context, it seems almost humorous. It's as if right now, in the middle of my sermon, one of our young people stood up and yelled, Hey, pastor, tell my brother to give me back my toy. 
Sorry, son. We're kind of in the middle of something. This is what Jesus faced. Now, it's obvious from this that this man is not listening at all to what Jesus is talking about. He is so preoccupied with his finances, so preoccupied with his difficulty, it's all he can think about. But before we get a little bit judgmental at him and say that we are so much better than him and we would never interrupt the pastor that way, let's put ourselves in his shoes. There's trouble in his family. And you know what that's like, don't you? When there's heartache and anger and shouting and conflict within the family, it's hard to think about anything else. It consumes us. We find ourselves staring off into space, thinking about things we've said or things we plan to say. And Luke wants us to understand this and to be in the place of this man. He does this over and over again, but I don't want you to miss it. Look at how verse 13 begins. Someone. Who? How tall? How short? How young? How old? We don't know. It could very well be you or me. It's just someone, Luke says. It's a universalizing principle because, you see, the issue here may be specific, but it reveals a universal need. You all know what this is like, don't you? Some of you have been in the shoes of Jesus. Some of you will be in the shoes of Jesus this afternoon as you are called to arbitrate between a squabble amongst your children. He took too much dessert. He didn't help enough with setting the table. He's got my stuff. And you will be called upon to enter into the fray. And it's frustrating, isn't it? You feel like the important things aren't being addressed, that you're being caught all the time in these difficulties. This is what Jesus is in the midst of. And we really don't know the facts of this story, so we can't put ourselves in Jesus' place and say, quick, give him the inheritance. No, tell him to sit down and be quiet. What is the man's complaint? Is it that he was given nothing? Is it that he was just given not as much as he wanted? Perhaps this man is like the prodigal and that he has been given his share of the inheritance, but he doesn't want to share it with his siblings. He doesn't want to be on the family farm anymore. He wants his share now so he can take it and go. You see, we don't know who the villain is in this story. We don't know who the hero is. We don't know what is justice. And Luke does that intentionally. Because you see, we're not meant to identify with the man or his brother. We're meant to think about the hold that stuff has upon us. Now, why would this man speak to Jesus about this? Why wouldn't he do what every good American would do in this spot? Get themselves ready find a lawyer and sue the living daylights out of their brother. Why does he go to the rabbi? Well, 
The laws of inheritance in this day were set forth in the Torah, in the Pentateuch, the the five books of Moses. That was what laid forth how much the first son got, how much the second son got, how you divided things out. It was actually kind of a, a theological debate. And so oftentimes family members would go to the local rabbi, getting them to interpret what the Bible said on inheritance and getting a decision. But you see, this man doesn't really want that. He doesn't come to Jesus and say, could you come and be with my brother and me and help us to figure out what's the right thing to do? No, no. He wants not a judge, not an arbitrator. He wants an advocate. He wants Jesus to lend his weight, to push down on his brother. He wants Jesus simply to decide for him. And so because of this, we see a side of Jesus that we are not used to, if we're honest with ourselves. We expect, I think at times, that if you take out the exception of Jesus overturning the money changers' tables, that the rest of the time, Jesus is kind of an introvert, a meek, mild person, someone who sits in the corner and is quiet. And to our surprise, When he's confronted with this decision, Jesus looks at him and he says, Man, who made me a judge over you? That is, you and your brother. Now, the word man here is definitely used in a sharp fashion. I don't know that Jesus would have said this, been this informal, but the idea behind it is something like, Hey, buddy, who made me a judge over you? Why are you bringing this issue to me now? You can almost sense the holy exasperation in Jesus as he is trying to teach on an important principle. And this man interrupts him. But what Jesus does is what he so often does is he takes a question, he takes something out of place, he takes something specific, and he uses it immediately as an opportunity to teach an important spiritual truth. Because the next words out of his mouth are addressed to all. And he says, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. He immediately turns to the whole crowd and through Luke to you and to me. And he says, Are you on your guard? Are you on your guard against covetousness? Now, I feel like we must take at least a moment to think about what covetousness is. It's a word that's even hard to pronounce, isn't it? It's sort of old-fashioned-y. What does it mean? We can't possibly think that we have the sin of covetousness because it's not even comfortable to say. Perhaps it would be more comfortable if we used the word greed or greedy. Maybe that makes it a little bit more personal. Because you see, at its root, the word covetous has the idea of excess. More than I need. More than I can even handle. I have to have the more, not because it's necessary or even useful, but just because I want more. You've seen this. You go out to the buffet, 
and you see someone pile sausage links or pieces of ham that no human being could possibly eat. Why? Just because they can. Right? I want more. If ten of one thing is good, a hundred's got to be even better. Right? This is the world that we live in. It is never being satisfied with what we have. And as a result, envying what others have. We have a job that we work at and provides for our families and we see others and we say, I want that job. We drive a brand new car off of the lot. A beautiful, stylish car. And then as we drive home, a luxury car rolls next to us and we immediately think, why did I get this? It's not enough. We buy a home of our dreams and picture we could live here forever. Then we go visit a friend and we immediately think we need to put our house on the market to get a better house. We're accepted into a school that we long to be in and we're excited about until we hear of someone else's program and we think our lives are over because we can't go to that school. You see, this is bound up in our heart, the desire to have and want more and more. And you see, covetousness is an especially grievous sin because it's a tricky sin. It's something that we keep inside, isn't it? You can covet all day long and not say a word and not show anything. It's not like stealing or lying or murdering. It's a respectable sin. And it's a subtle sin. It's a sin that we think we can control. We can acknowledge, perhaps, that stealing has gotten out of hand. That we lie too much. But who says to themselves, you know, I covet too much. It's a sin that gets a death grip around us. Because you see, covetousness is also a root sin. It is not just the fruit of sin, it is a root sin. Think about all of the things that covetousness causes us to do. We lie. We steal. We hurt others. We tear others down. All to get what we want, to get ahead. Jesus knows this. And he deals with this sin directly and sharply because at its core, covetousness is idolatry. It says, God is not enough. I know what I need. It's not about the thing, people. You could covet violins or Xboxes or cars or money. But at the end, it is about us saying that we are in control and we know what we need to live productively and happily. It's the patron sin of 21st century America, isn't it? Because if we're honest with ourselves, even the poorest among us are amongst the wealthiest people to ever walk the face of the earth. How many people in the world today long for clean water, electricity, doctors and nurses 
a short car ride away. Shelter from the elements. You see, this is a sin we must confront because it latches on to our hearts. What must we do about it? Jesus says we have to beware. We have to take care and be on our guard. Now, this is a very active thing that Jesus is inciting us to. I fear that sometimes, as we think correctly about the sovereignty of God and how God's decree and God's will is of utmost importance, we tend to make ourselves, our own pursuit of the Christian life, passive. As if God will do all of the forming of us into the image of Christ and we just sit there and let Him go to work. But that's not what Jesus says here. You see, he actually uses this word, take care. It is a synonym, but it is different from the word that he used earlier in the chapter, in verse 1, where he said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. That beware was more of a sit back and look around. This take care is an active verb. You have to be like a private investigator. You're snooping around. You're looking into things. You're being active. Are you active with your faith today? Are you seeking actively to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to hear His words and to do them? You see, that's what faith is. True and living faith is the pursuit of Jesus, obeying His commands. It's not just being aware, though. Look at what else Jesus says. We are to be on our guard. We are to be vigilant like night sentries in a war zone. We are to be actively pursuing. This is a frequent warning the New Testament gives that we are to be on our guard against covetousness. It requires a constant vigilance because we have to recognize covetousness for what it is, that it affects our very perspective on life. Jesus then begins to press the point home even more to us by telling a parable. Have you ever noticed that whenever Jesus tells a parable, you get a bit uncomfortable? You know, it's easy to look at the parables and think they're directed at the Pharisees or at the Sadducees. But whenever he tells a parable, there's a, a sharpness to it. There's a truth that cuts home where you uncomfortably shift in your seat and you say, yeah, I guess I do that sometimes. Right? And so that's what he's doing here. He tells of a man. And he says, there is a man and the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Now, our first thought at this text is to blame the man here, to blame his wealth. Because you see, that lets us off the hook. The problem is the man is too rich. Well, how much is too rich? Well, I think it's been said very accurately that you can tell this every election cycle. Because too rich is having more than me. I'm never too rich. It's everybody above me. That's too rich. And so if the problem here is wealth, then I have escaped the parable. But you see, the attack here is not on wealth. 
This parable is not a simplistic rich, bad, poor, good. Because, you see, the Bible is full of descriptions of those who have material blessings. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, David. Wealth in and of itself is not a bad thing. Even the way this is described, the man did not cheat. He did not hurt anyone. Actually, his wealth is a blessing from whom? God. He didn't even do anything. He has no factory. He has no labor force. It is the ground itself that bore bountifully. What's the problem then? If it's not the blessings, what's the problem? The problem is the me solution that the man comes up with. It's, it's not wrong to have wealth. It's not wrong even to plan. His error was not simply about what type of barn to build. No. We really see the answer to this in his language. That he is only thinking about himself. His self-possession. He doesn't thank God for the blessing that he's been given. He doesn't even acknowledge that it comes from God. He doesn't think about how he could possibly use this for anything other than himself. The key here is verse 19. I do all of this planning. I have this great dilemma. And the problem is I need to figure out how I can spend all of the rest of my days consuming Living a life of ease. Helping no one. Do you see that? Relax. Eat. Drink. And be merry. It is not a coincidence that Paul uses that same phrase to describe those who are unaware of God and who are without hope in the world. He is completely self-absorbed. Do this exercise. Look with your eyes, starting at verse 17. And see how often the word I and my are used. It's 11 times. Look at this. What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. I will do this. I will tear down my barns. And I will store my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul. This is his three favorite people. Me, myself, and I. No thought is given to anyone else. He is completely self-absorbed. He is completely selfish. And as a result of this, he has a presumption. His world revolves around him and he can't possibly think how things would go other than he desires and plans. He has planned out his 20 years on the beach at Malibu. And don't let reality get in the way. And he is thankless about how this has all come to him. And again, this describes, in the main, the modern American mentality. Now, 
The Bible nowhere tells you that you must work at your current job till the day you die. But the Bible does not know of the man who calls it a day and spends the rest of his life sipping Mai Tais on the beach, not helping anyone, not being productive, not encouraging others, not passing down a legacy, not studying God's Word. That kind of retirement is a made-up modern American dream. Ask a 6th century European or a 9th century person from China or a 12th century person from Africa or even our forefathers from 100 years ago. You see, the problem here is he's centered completely on himself. And when he does this, do you see the irony? He's the most anxious guy in the room. He has no solidity. Look at what drives him. My barns are too small. I won't be able to keep all my stuff. How am I going to keep all my stuff? How am I going to relax? He's a nervous Nelly. Now, think about this in context. Jesus has just described that he has had a banner year. The best year he's ever had. So much wealth has poured in. He does not know how to store it all. And he is worried that his world might end. You see, we're anxious not when we are tight financially. We're anxious when we're tight with God. The more that we walk away from the Lord the more that we walk away from the one who keeps us secure, that is when we are anxious. When we're centered on ourselves. And you see, when we are possessed by our possessions, when we are centered on ourselves, the problem is is that that's all we can think about. And we make inadequate preparation for what's really important. How long is the average lifespan now? I think it's up in the mid-80s in America. And you do realize that that still is a blink in just recorded history, let alone eternity. You see, the problem is there is not enough time because we're only thinking about the here and the now. We're not thinking about the eternal. We are constantly putting off thoughts of death constantly putting off eternity, only thinking about what we need now. And so the question is, are you cultivating spiritual things in your life? Or are you worried if you have as many video games as your friends? Or as nice of a car? Or as big of a home? Or as great a vacation? Do you put as much planning into your spiritual growth as you do building your portfolio? Do you look at it as often? Now again, there's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with being wise stewards. But our entire world and culture is built to show us that that is all that is what is important. And Jesus makes it very sharp for us. 
He says, God says to the man, Fool! This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now, this is an interesting use of language. It's actually not a passive verb. It's not your soul will be required of you. It's actually an active verb. They will require your soul. It's the same language that Luke uses in chapter 6 and verse 30, where he says, the lender demands back what he is owed from the debtor. You see, the reality is nothing we have is truly ours, right? When death comes, you won't even need the clothes you're wearing. Nothing is truly yours. And your soul even is not your own. No one chooses the time of their own death and eternity. It's in the hands of the Lord. It's like a debt called back from a banker. It is a heavenly call for death. And the problem is that this man has given absolutely no thought to that reckoning. His preparation has not taken that into account. He's not thought about the glory of God. He's not thought about the needs of others. He's focused only on himself and what is fleeting. So there's not enough time. Let me tell you, I just celebrated my 45th birthday yesterday. Some of you are saying that's not so old. Others of you are saying, how can you still walk you're so old? Some of you who have had more birthday candles than me know this even better. There's never enough time, is there? The time gets shorter and shorter. Hourglass runs faster and faster. There is never enough time now. Your preparations need to be for eternity. Because you see, at its core, the problem is, is that there is not only not enough time, the key is... There's not enough of God. Jesus makes this point in his last statement in verse 21. He says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. You see, Jesus is intentionally drawing a comparison. He says, you all are like this man in this way. If you are not rich toward God, you're facing the same problem. There's a theological summary going on here. The fool is not one who is stupid. It is not one who has not graduated from university. The fool, the Bible says, is the one who says in his heart, there is no God. And so we have to ask ourselves the question, what is our focus in life? Is all we think about the here and the now? Are all we are trying to do is to get ahead? The problem is that life is not defined by its objects. Life is defined in relationships. And especially the relationship that we have with the living God. The contrast in this parable is not between rich and poor. The contrast comes out in verse 21. Do you see it? 
So don't worry about if you are rich and then face this problem. Don't worry about if you are poor and don't face this problem. The contrast is in verse 21. It is between those who live for themselves and those who live for God. That's the contrast. Do you see it? Anyone, no matter how humble their home or how ratty-tagged their car, if they're living solely for themselves, they're like this rich man. Jesus is calling you today to focus on what is eternal. To focus upon what you were created for. To glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. To believe in His Word. and To trust in His Son. Matthew puts it so well in chapter 6 of his gospel. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures here on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys And where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there will be your heart also. Is your heart set on heaven? Is your heart set on Jesus? If it is, then you need not be anxious. You need not worry whether you have too much or too little stuff. All of that shakes out in the wash. The focus we need is not upon our stuff, but upon Jesus. Let's pray.